Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Russell Stevenson, and I'm here today with Dr. Philip Barlow to talk about navigating the sometimes conflicting and sometimes collaborating interpretations of traditional LDS teachings and modern biblical scholarship. Dr. Philip L. Barlow is the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. He earned a PhD in 1988 with an emphasis on religion and American culture and the history of Christianity from Harvard University. At Utah State, he has taught courses in religious studies, Mormonism, and American religion. His books include The Oxford Handbook to Mormonism, co-edited with Terrell Gibbons, and Mormons in the Bible, The Place of Latter-day Saints in American Religion. He is also the author of Adam and Eve in the 21st Century, Navigating Conflicting Commandments in the LDS Faith and Biblical Scholarship, which appeared in the most recent issue of Studies in the Bible and Antiquity that we'll be reviewing today. Welcome, Philip. Thank you. Glad to be here. Within the LDS tradition, I mean, there is this sense of an open canon. There is this sense of a continuing revelation, and quite explicitly, that the Bible is only true in as far as it is translated correctly. What are the ramifications of that for how Latter-day Saints understand Scripture and understand this notion of, quote-unquote, the Word of God? Yes. Well, they are many, and they are profound and foundational, and I think we as a people need to keep exploring them more than we have so far. Uh, The Bible is the Word of God. Does that mean every word in the Bible is God talking into a dictaphone where prophetic secretaries transcribe God's Word, or does it mean the Bible contains the Word of God? What do we do with changes over history where God seems to be saying one thing early in the Bible and another thing later in the Bible? What do we do with statements in the Book of Mormon that seem to correct statements in the Bible, etc.? So there's a rather large bouquet of questions that we ought to ask ourselves as we try in devotion and with intellectual integrity to respect these texts that at the least our faith says have been touched with inspiration, or that the prophetic figures who wrote them have been subject to inspiration. That's quite different than saying everything in it is inspired. The understanding of the Bible over the course of Western history has not always been governed by religious authorities, especially towards the end of the 19th century. You begin to have a crop of scholars began to engage in what has been called higher criticism, of the Bible. How about you unpack that notion for us? Because a lot of us hear about it in popular discourse. Criticism in the public mind sometimes can sound negative, like you're being critical of this thing, but it, like movie criticism or theater criticism, just means careful, competent thinking about. So criticism means scholarship and careful thought. And textual criticism means that we're doing careful thought with modern tools about the history of the text. So like the Eighth Article of Faith says, the Bible, as far as it's translated correctly, that's a problematic thing, and we want textual criticism or so-called lower criticism is the scholarly attempt 
to establish what the original texts looked like. So if we have a text of the Epistle of James or the Gospel of Matthew or the book of Isaiah, there are going to be hundreds of copies in most instances of those texts, no two of which in their entirety read the same because there are copyist errors or additions, intentional or inadvertent. And so the scholarship of textual criticism has ways that they've invented and principles that they've established to help us get to what the originals looked like. Whereas so-called higher criticism, a little arrogant sounding higher than other your poor suckers' attempts to understand the text, really means modern literary and historical thinking about or tools brought to bear about the well-established text that textual criticism has given us. So, for instance, one dimension of higher criticism is called source criticism, which is to say we are trying to figure out what we call the book of Genesis, what sources went into that author's writing of Genesis, or where did Matthew get his material from, especially since it reads quite differently than the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. How are these things put together? Source criticism, how are these things put together? Redaction criticism is a technical-sounding word for the process of editing. So we know now through higher criticism that the book of Genesis, for instance, was put together by several sources and an editor kind of wove them together into a single narrative that strikes the casual reader or the average reader as a coherent account. But if you put it under a careful microscope, conceptually, you can trace out different sections of the book that are clearly authored by different traditions, represented by different writers, or just oral traditions coming down. There will be one strand of Genesis that has a certain vocabulary for God's name and a certain theology about how God is conceived, and that's conceived differently in a different section of Genesis, most famously chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis, the two creation accounts, don't work the same, don't have quite the same type of God in mind, the order of creation is inverted, etc. And it seems to me that the implications of this kind of higher criticism is ultimately it would point to a kind of instability of the text, rather than being this fixed set of ideas, accounts, experiences that existed you know, at a specific place in time. We're coming to see these accounts as being, okay, well, maybe they're not as reliable as we once thought they were. That word reliable is an interesting word and an elastic word, a malleable word. If our assumptions about the text, because it's a sacred text, it contains the Word of God, that everything about it is accurate, that's understandable, but it is an assumption on our part. An analogy could be made with something closer to history in our own tradition, and that is Joseph Smith's own account of his first vision. When I was in college, I had a professor trying to overthrow the faith of the Latter-day Saints, bring up these several 
stories that Joseph Smith himself had told about his first vision account. That's fairly common knowledge now. He was expressing these accounts to different audiences at different stages of his own reflection on them for different purposes. And similarly, we can establish that that went on in the ancient world, obviously reflecting about the experience of Jesus. We have four canonized Gospels and a good number of others that aren't canonized all the same. Higher criticism and the instability or vulnerability of the text just doesn't need to overthrow faith or that these are unreliable or inaccurate or false or fraudulent even texts so much as it is an invitation for us to think carefully about. We have these texts that are conveying a sacred story. How did they come to be? And if we get two versions of one episode, we just have to take notice of humans in order to apprehend even secular history, let alone divine history, have to receive it and think about it and digest it as a congregation or a people. And so they are unstable in the sense that they had to come into being historically, even with the touch of the divine, just like you and I did in our mother's womb. We're not the same way at every point in our coming into being. So we're unstable in the sense of evolving. And then when we come to be, we're always rethinking who we are and how we ought to be in the world. And you might make an analog that way about the texts. And to me, that highlights a particularly Latter-day Saint notion that focuses on the role of human agency, the role of human choice in interacting with the divine. We are making choices whether or not we're conscious of them because our 15-year-old selves and our 25-year-old selves and 50-year-old selves do it differently, even if we're not thinking about that deliberately. So the divine has to be imagined, even though our faith says that divine is stable and real, we have to encounter it somehow, and even prophets have to encounter it. Joseph Smith, because he's so close to in history, we can document how his thinking evolved over time. We look then at the impact that higher criticism had on the world of biblical scholarship. And we can also look at how it affected not just biblical scholarship, but how Latter-day Saints came to imagine or came to see these texts with which they already have a complicated relationship. So how about you walk us through what the impact was of higher criticism on Christian scholarship, Jewish scholarship, Islamic scholarship of the Old Testament, as well as Latter-day Saint scholarship. Yes. Well, those are quite different in those several traditions, so I'm glad you asked the question that way. In the scholarship of the Quran, for instance, within Islam, for the most part, anything resembling historical literary criticism in Western civilization has been frowned upon even to the point of being dangerous for the well-being of these scholars. That is, it wasn't allowed and isn't allowed in much of the world right now. The text is conceived in this way. The prophet Muhammad is prompted by the angel Gabriel to recite, and he speaks, and that divine process is really reflecting a divine perfect, inerrant work written in heaven. So anything trying to get at the evolution of the texts in a scholarly fashion or historical issues that have to be sorted through 
have severe limits on it. That goes on among scholars of Islam in the West, in the United States, but even that's really quite recent within the last decade or so. Some of that's developing more than was allowed earlier. Whereas when historical literary criticism or higher criticism was developing in Europe and then in the United States in the 19th century, many strands of Judaism responded negatively and called it anti-Semitism. This is an intellectual attack on Judaism's very fabric, so it could be taken um, very personally. That sort of thing happened within Christianity. Roman Catholicism was somewhat buffered from it because they didn't have a tradition of sola scriptura. They had more flexibility in a scripture that evolved over time because it had to do so in the custody of the church, as we already were talking about. But in the most influential aspects of religion in 19th century United States and early 20th century United States, that is the Protestant dominant culture, higher criticism was rocked, fractured Protestantism in the most profound way since the Protestant Reformation fractured Western Christianity into Protestant and Catholic groups. Are these scriptures, what is their authority and how divine are they? How perfect or imperfect are they? And the result was as the between, say, the 1870s, 1880s, and the 1920s, 30s, 40s, the result was to fracture Protestantism into fundamentalist or modernist, that is, conservative or liberal groupings. Presbyterianism fractured along those lines, Methodism fractured along those lines, the Baptist fractured along those lines. These developments, to me, they seem to be intimately interwoven with the developments of industrialization, of you know, kind of like Max Weber's comments about this sense of disenchantment with the world, right? Where, where people are no longer necessarily accepting that providence plays an immediate and everyday role in one's life, but that you can now begin to rely on human wisdom and human infrastructure in order to understand the world in which you live. Yes, and that process goes on, and it's perfectly true that there have had to be revolutions in Christian thought, to use that example, and including in LDS thought among those who were thinking hard about it. We used to imagine God as the creator of the world and the only one who could create the world with angelic help, but now we're doing very odd things in laboratories like cloning sheep and having test tube production of babies or mapping the human genome, those used to be powers that we understood to be reserved for God, or the atomic age happened in the 1940s, and we used to think that God alone would have the power to destroy the world, and now we're aware that environmentally or chemically or in nuclear fashion, we're capable of destroying creation. That doesn't mean there isn't a God, but it does mean we have some adjustment in thinking to go. I would state the most fundamental thing that happened during the course of the 19th and early 20th century is the change in human consciousness among those who were educated from conceiving of reality as static, just something that was there and had to be mapped out, and by the way, that included the Bible. That was all divine revelation and just had to be 
mapped out almost like the periodic table in chemistry. You could just chart it and make a topography of reality using the Bible as your text. There was a shift from that static and monolithic view of reality, truth is unchanging evermore, to a world model where change was the order of the day. So Darwin's evolution, biological evolution, and the origin and change in species is the poster child for that sort of change. But even our sense of history, our modern sense of history as change across time, as opposed to who ruled what country and won what war when back anciently, just a listing of things, but actually change or evolution in time, in political institutions, in human consciousness. Even our very sense of history was part of that change. Geology, the physical nature of the universe, had to go from a biblical account of taken literally of 6,000 years or, or six days, however one construed it, to a process of change where we could demonstrate by scientific method that this was millions of years old. So those are several examples to get at. We did a world shift, a paradigm or model shift about how reality worked from static to change right in that 50 or 80 year period. So it was a profound revolution. And then that, through these tools of historical and literary criticism, had began to be applied to scriptural texts. They, too, had a history. We should be a little more comfortable with that right now. The scriptural texts had a history, duh, but back then it was shocking. These changes, they strike me as a transition between the sense of a universalist enlightenment world, where the world is run by laws, it's predictable, you can understand what happened yesterday, and you more or less understand what will happen tomorrow, at least from the bird's eye view. Whereas over the course of the 19th century, you know, as you were saying, you know, as you see the, the changes of industrialization, as you see these changes in the discipline of history, geology, the natural sciences, people are beginning to see the world as one that is no longer predictable. And to come back to this word of reliability, maybe to some extent it's not entirely reliable. So I'm interested to see it. We can talk about it in terms of how scholars imagine it, but also like ordinary people, they would absorb these changes maybe in a less nuanced way where they would end up adapting them as like, wow, I, maybe the world that I thought I knew was radically different. Yes. And they would be right, would they yeah. not? <laughs> the world looks radically different to me than it did when I was 20. They would be right. How we imagine and access the world would look really different. And that can create a early life crisis or an adolescent crisis or a midlife crisis, can create a faith crisis. In my estimation, in living in this world, in this world of thought, it need not. But it's an understandable problem. One short answer to your question is yes, absolutely. Uh, it would be shocking to people. Naturally, with every development that comes in society through scholarship or science or politics, it's heard with different ears at different levels or regions of society. So with the general public was much more aware of the issue of Darwinian evolution as a threat to their faith, potentially, than they were of higher criticism of the scriptural text, because 
it's much more easily popularized. What? My great-grandparents were chimpanzees? Horrors. So the public's going to engage that because it's easy to caricature and get into their minds. It's not necessarily easier for people to get into the principles and understand what biological science can now establish. Everybody, by the turn of the 20th century, by the time we got to the year 1900, everybody was aware of Darwinism and was either starting to defend it or mock it or persecute those who tried to teach it. We arrived in the 1920s as everyone in the United States has likely heard of the famous Scopes trial, but that would have been um, that sort of dynamic would have been going on in other parts of the world. Whereas higher criticism took a longer time and still is much weaker in the public mind than the idea of evolution because it you can't popularize it in quite the same way. It doesn't lend itself to quite that same static shock as your great-grandparents were chimpanzees. So that process is by no means complete even today. But in both cases... It had to start with either scientists or scholars and then some debates at that level, and then it had to have a trickle-down effect to the wider culture. Now, let's talk for a moment how some of these debates influenced Mormonism specifically. We know that in the late 19th century, individuals such as Sidney Sperry, who had received some level of theological training, he began to have more influence in the church educational system. But at the same time, you also have individuals like Heber C. Snell, where he certainly identified much more with this higher criticism, with this uh, so-called liberal interpretation of the scriptures. So how about you walk us through like how these debates manifested themselves on the grounds uh, within uh, Latter-day Saint praxis? Yeah. Mormons, even more so than Catholics, were somewhat buffered from these conversations. In the Protestant world, almost every major tradition started to have a series of heresy trials and public news accounting for the scandal of this or this preacher questioning the historicity of some passage or another of the biblical text. I've already suggested that the Catholics had some distance from that because they weren't reduced to a sola scriptura notion of an inerrant Bible and the Bible alone as their authority. The Latter-day Saints were even more buffered from those conversations for good and for ill, in my estimation. And they were buffered from them because they had a sense of living prophets among them. And of course, they had the Book of Mormon and other scriptures, which were construed as correcting the Bible and not as subject to the precarious transmission and translation over the centuries. So the Latter-day Saints did not engage these issues as early as the Protestant world, nor as thoroughly as the Protestant world. And the good side of that, aided by the fact that the leaders of the church issued a no-comment sort of response, so we don't have an official position on historical literary criticism, nor for a long time on biological evolution. And so officially there was a buffer there, don't have a schism in the church over this. So that was helpful. The unfortunate side of this is that we Latter-day Saints haven't come to terms with these things that are no longer very new. We're talking a century and two centuries old now of some things that we should come to terms with that we haven't. 
very thoroughly. So it's good that the church didn't split over them. It's good that we're separating official church stances from scholarly conclusions. There's no official response to that. But it's unfortunate that we aren't informed by them because among one is just that our God is a God of truth, as both reason and scripture and devotion tell us. If God were the most powerful being in the universe or the all-powerful being in the universe but not a God of truth, then he might be worthy of my quivering in front of him. Please don't throw a lightning bolt at me. But he wouldn't, he, we, he, she, they, God, wouldn't be worthy of devotion, love, like truth is a necessary part of that. Without God as God of truth, God would cease to be God in that sense. And so one difficulty of us as a people not encountering this higher criticism, these tools that are available to us for understanding the scriptures, is that it sets us up to be brittle, just like in the church, not paying attention to historical developments and our own history as a people has set up many of our people and especially many of our young people for a crisis of faith when they discover some outrageous allegation, many of which are stupid and don't have a historical basis. In fact, that's all over the internet, but some of them do have a historical basis, in fact, and causes people to break and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the same sort of threat is there with not being competent with basic tools of approaching the biblical text. And that is when we find out that such and such is true, or when we get really looking or on the internet read that Matthew and Luke quite different than their account of this or that, then we're setting ourselves up possibly to crack with a brittle, non-organic faith. So it's a potential problem. It will never be quite like these other historical issues, maybe because it takes a little bit of work to even understand what the problems are. But it's out there. It does happen to people. And in our era where religion generally is under critique, let alone the religion of the Latter-day Saints, it's a potential problem that ought to be addressed you mentioned that the LDS Church should not take an official stance on some of these higher criticism debates, but that does not mean that there were not semi or even unofficial manifestations of these debates on the ground. You have various professors at Brigham Young University attempting to teach evolution, and they were dismissed for doing so. You know, you have J. Reuben Clark, you know, where he presents his chartered course in church education, which was you know, meant to be a response and a rather critical response uh, to some of these higher criticism debates uh, in the sense that he didn't find them to be terribly legitimate and ultimately he felt like the Latter-day Saints should embrace the King James Version of the Bible as being a kind of a, a cornerstone of Christianity and their faith. So there is some level of these debates on the ground within Mormonism. Would you comment on other areas in which these debates manifest themselves? One of the episodes where this was manifest that you would have been alluding to, I suspect, is in 1911 here at Brigham Young University. There were two brothers, Chamberlains were their name, and two other brothers by the name of Peterson. And they had had some education out in the outside world, both in the East and on the West Coast. And they had begun to have some competence with the issues uh, and principles of historical literary criticism of the biblical text.
context as well as the arguments for biological evolution. And that caused tensions. That was a threat to people's perception of God or how God works, just as in Galileo's day or Copernicus's day, a new model of how the universe works was threatening because the model of how the universe worked or how nature worked, how the world was arranged in uh, relation to the cosmos, gets all mixed up in our human minds with claims about the divine as such. But neither Mormons nor earlier Christians nor Jews nor Muslims nor atheists, none of these peoples are immune from developments in society, including changing paradigms of reality. So it happened at BYU in 1911, and all four of those brothers who taught at the university were either dismissed from their position or so discouraged in their opportunities that they were effectively invited out of town, shall we say. And it happened again in the 1930s when the church recognized it needed to have thoughtful people teaching religion and teaching scripture, and they even supported, commissioned a group to go back to the University of Chicago and get some education. That included Heber Snell, and it included Sidney Sperry. And they, like happens today when young Latter-day Saints go off to school and study religion or study formal biblical studies, they respond to it differently. That's true in the non-LDS world, too, of course. And so, Sidney Sperry and Heber C. Snell had different responses. Sidney Sperry's was more reserved, traditional, conservative, and apologetic explicitly than Snell's was. And so, he had a long, fruitful career at BYU. There's still an annual conference called the Sidney Sperry Symposium in his honor that goes on here. Heber C. Snell, by contrast, had a harder time and was dismissed from teaching in the education system of the church, although David O. McKay, the president of the church and earlier a senior apostle, wrote to Chamberlain's brother Ralph that he thought it was a tragedy that Chamberlain had been dismissed from his position, that we needed his kind of thinking to inform us, and that he found him to be a faithful brother. And indeed, he was invited later to teach again with the church education system. From the first time that we as a people were aware of these issues, we had to encounter them like any other people did, and we had to interpret them. And we wouldn't all respond to them the same way. The official church and officials at Brigham Young University were very cautious. That may even be a generous word. They were cautious or sharply disapproving of these scholars bringing what these leaders thought of as outside perspectives into the gospel kingdom because it was the business of the church and church leaders to foster faith, and they considered these new approaches to scriptures to be a threat to faith. We have more and more Latter-day Saints who are getting education in these things or learning from the people who have education in these things that see that they need not be a threat to faith. Biological evolution is demonstrable. Particulars of the theories can be debated and are debated among the 
scientists and sometimes evolve and get refined, but the idea that there's a genetic component and that mutation happens and that some mutation tends to reinforce survivability, that is not contestable by people who see the evidence. Biological evolution is taught here at Brigham University very comfortably for many years now. And so generally the idea is that these are natural laws or that that's how God operates. And similarly, with the scriptural text, we might say, of course, the people had to, including the prophets, had to apprehend the divine. They did it through a glass darkly, as Paul says. They're trying to the best of their knowledge to convey the word of God and God's word can't be confined to the human consciousness without some growth going on. And these tools can help us understand that process and need not be a threat to our faith, but they are a threat to our preconceptions at any given point. If we're inviting ourselves to be more Christ-like, I should say that there was nothing more typical about Christ other than maybe love. If we examine his life through the New Testament Gospels, one of his chief characteristics was always puncturing everybody's preconceptions, whether his enemies or his devotees, right? There's nothing evil about that because our preconceptions need to be popped and reconstructed regularly. That doesn't let us off the hook for being better off if we're competent with texts that we're studying and putting before us as guides by which to live our life, it's not a sinful question to ask, what is the nature of these texts and how did they come to us? How shall we approach them? What did the original authors mean in their historical setting and time and Jewish language or Aramaic language that only comes down to us in Greek that is translated into semi-medieval language that we're now appropriating in the 21st century That'd be a good thing to sort of get competent with that process, lest we live our lives according to some false principles by being ignorant. There's nothing virtuous about ignorance. There is something virtuous about humility. In fact, I think you can make the argument that asking those kinds of questions of a text and how it came down to you, it could be seen as a sign of humility in the sense that there is knowledge here that I do not have access to, and I'm willing to put in the effort to find that knowledge. And I recognize that I, based on my own learning and wisdom and background, am ultimately incompetent to gain this knowledge without doing outside research and asking people who have competence in those areas that I do not have. Yeah, indeed. There is what I call Job's friends syndrome, which is to say in the book of Job, as we have it, Job's so-called friends, all they do throughout the book is defend God. How dare you have questions about God? How dare you, you insolent little sinner? You, Job, say that you're innocent. Clearly, you're not innocent because you're suffering, and suffering comes at God's hands as punishment for sins. So even if you don't know it, you're guilty. So all they do is try to put Job in his place in defense of God. And at the end of the story, God is really upset with them and won't talk to them except through Job because they haven't done well. As my servant Job has, the text reads, we can sin. Apparently, we can displease God by defending God on grounds of ignorance and too much confidence in our ignorance. Latter-day Saints, they have been raised within a certain worldview with certain assumptions about what sacred texts mean. 
However, in you know the 20th and 21st centuries, we have a number of Latter-day Saint scholars who have been engaging in these learning that comes from the academy and from outside of the LDS tradition. In your article, you maintain that your fundamental suggestion is that Mormons work from within the tradition, finding and thinking the resources in Mormonism that comport with modern literary historical tools and to assign these tools a healthy sphere while remaining their masters rather than their slaves. I would like you to comment on this tension that exists between useful tools that are built within the Mormon tradition juxtaposed against tools that come from the outside. Well, the 13th Article of Faith and other statements by Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and other church leaders teaches us that if there's anything virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy, and by implication true and helpful, we're invited to embrace and seek after those things and make them part of their faith. So I have no objection to learning from anybody that I can learn, including principles, insights from textual criticism, historical criticism, science, or the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Muslims or the Buddhists. That's a principle of Mormonism that's well established. However, if I'm teaching a Sunday school class and I start quoting Julius Wellhausen, the famous 19th century German higher critic, that may confuse and discombobulate part of my audience. And there's plenty of room to call on our own tradition in that kind of devotional context that could be constructive. For instance, Mormon is depicted forthrightly in the story of how the Book of Mormon came forth as an editor dealing with bazillions of plates and records over a thousand years and selecting, abridging, editing, maybe conflating, for all we know, the text to get a simple, straightforward narrative. That is what is called the documentary hypothesis that without a forthright picture like that, scholars determined was going on in Genesis and the five books of Moses, and now we know elsewhere in the Bible. If that raised questions about the reliability, if that horrified like Moses wasn't actually the author of this book and several people were and that it came from different traditions, it's actually just what Mormon is portrayed as doing by Joseph Smith without knowing anything about higher criticism of the text. That's an example of drawing right within our tradition to defame the issue. There's nothing scary. There's no reason why the divine can't be involved in a process like that just because it doesn't comport with our picture. Does that make sense? That's, I'm perfectly happy learning from the outside world, but when it's more helpful to draw right from our own tradition, there it is staring us in the face without being named by those words, documentary hypothesis. That's what he's doing is editing documents. In your article, you list a number of approaches for Latter-day Saints as they engage higher criticism and uh, as they engage questions about the origins of Scripture. What would you suggest that we do to avoid losing our faith as we engage these questions? 
Well, one of them is maybe gain some familiarity at the hands of a person who is both informed and faithful, who has not thrown the baby out with the bathwater, about some of these approaches to Scripture. Because, as I said earlier, without knowledge of historical change, our faith can be brittle and uninformed, and when it gets a little knowledge, it can crack quite open. In the history of the interpretation of Genesis 3, all through Judaism, all through Christianity, all through Islam, all through modern psychoanalysis, thinking of it as archetypes and dreams, there's one aspect that seems to be unique. And I have taught a class on the history of the interpretation of Genesis 3 a few times, and that is that Adam and Eve were given contradictory commandments, right? Multiply, replenish the earth, don't partake of that tree. Joseph taught, and the Book of Mormon alludes that those collide. That's a tension, sort of a contradiction. What do we do? Do we turn our back on God and say, I'm not going to play that game, I'm leaving? Or do we choose A, or do we choose B? Uh, They had to work it out. They had to navigate that tension. So my point in saying that story is that we ought not be afraid of what strikes us as contradiction or tension. The whole universe is held together by tension. Our solar system is held together by a combination of centrifugal and centripetal forces, and without it, it would fly apart, as would our galaxy, as would our marriages, right? Tensions are difference between men and women by their natures. So when we gain a little knowledge and it grows in tension with an earlier model of truth or earlier sense of fact or how God works or what Scripture is, we're going to be a little surprised and maybe a little uncomfortable. What we ought not do is panic in the face of that because that's how growth works. That's how, as Joseph put it, he did not originate this saying as he's sometimes implicitly given credit for in our tradition, but he cited a saying of his day by proving contraries, truth is made manifest, right? So one is, of course, don't be silly. You're going to learn some new things, and it's going to collide a little bit with your models. The advice I would give then is I'm going to think about it, pray about it. I'm going to not panic in the face of it. I'm just going to explore it. And the reason I'm going to explore it without fear is that God is a God of truth, and whatever the truth is of this matter God is not going to hold up his hands to his eyes and say, oh my goodness, Betty Sue has found me out here. That's a silly notion of reality, right? So God is a God of truth. Embrace that fact. Seek truth and wisdom and knowledge and goodness wherever it's found, including in the world of scholarship. But we need to be critical of higher criticism, which is not to say rejected or negated, but we need to be thoughtful about it. And not all practitioners of higher criticism do it deftly. Some of it is experimental. There's a famous group of scholars operating since the late 20th century called the Jesus Seminar, and they have published a color-coded series of Gospels that are bright red if I can't remember if this is negative or positive, but I'll say positive, bright red, if they're confident that Jesus spoke this word, and pink, if they're less sure, but he probably said it. 
or gray if he probably didn't say it, or dark black if they're very sure that this isn't a historical saying of Jesus, or I may have the two colors reversed. And then uh, they got to those judgments by having a series of scholars think it through, decide, and then vote on it. That's not silly, but it's not a very secure foundation for determining the historicity of any one of these sayings. And sometimes they determine it, whether Jesus likely said this thing historically or not, on the basis of a principle that they've set forth. So an example is if a statement in the New Testament that's put in Jesus's mouth might be embarrassing, but it still survived in the gospel account, it's more likely to be true. So, for instance, women who did not have standing to be witnesses legally in first century Judaism are the first witnesses of Jesus's resurrection. That should be embarrassing. You might think that they would have covered that up and found men to do it, but they didn't. So that's probably a true historical thing that women were the first. That's an argument. Is that plausible and logical? Sure. Is it a sure foundation? No, it's a deduction, a scholarly, rationalized deduction. So we need to weigh into that higher critical principle and say how much are we persuaded by that. People who just think it's only dopes who don't practice historical criticism, no, that's naive at a secondary level. We need to be critical about our tools of criticism. I'm reminded of Hubie Brown's citation of a kind of an ancient saying where he said, from the cowardice that backs away from truth, from the laziness that is satisfied with half-truth, O God of truth, deliver us. Mm, yeah. A love of truth, but we can make an idol of truth. We can make an idol of the Bible. We can make an idol of ourselves. We can make an idol of our own images of God that need to be broken down. So higher criticism can become an idol our perceptions of rejecting higher criticism can be an idol. We have to welcome truth and be humble. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Philip Barlow. We are definitely edified and enlightened by your comments. I was happy to be here, and thanks for your good explorations. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.